0: Some segments of this book may be rough going. That's the nature of real science. It requires thought, sometimes deep thought, but thinking can be rewarding. You can just skip through the rough parts, or you can struggle to understand. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. The awesome Kip Thorne there, Matthew. Cool. Uh, Born June the 1st, 1940. What a ledge.
1: Yes. Happy birthday. In fact, happy 78th birthday to the Nobel Prize winning Kip Thorne and his detection of gravitational waves amongst other things. Huge news. Well, there's actually some other birthdays on this day and that's Alexander Valentinovich Zakharov who was the Soviet and Russian chief scientist who was involved with, unfortunately, Mars failed missions. Russia and their Mars missions, always a bit of a disaster. But yes, he was involved in Mars 96 and the more recent Phobos grunt mission that failed to bring back some samples from Mars's moon Phobos. And also Georgi Dobrovsky. Who was uh, one of the unfortunate Soviet cosmonauts who perished in the Soyuz 11 spacecraft? And they are is one of three people uh, to have died in space in that terrible um, accident, where they basically suffocated due to a valve being opened during re-entry, which sucked all the air out the uh, Soyuz spacecraft. Jamie, we've got a massive interview with David Baker today. It's a really long one, but it's really, really interesting. So I'm going to do very minimal uh, editing down of it. So I suggest that we just get straight on with the space news. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! Unfortunately, we're going to start with a couple of sad stories. Um, we've got Don Peterson, who was the first person to do a spacewalk from the space shuttle. Uh, unfortunately, he died this week at the age of 84. Uh, so, yeah, he was part of the maiden voyage of the uh, maiden voyage of the Challenger space shuttle on STS six. And he performed the first ever spacewalk from the shuttle Airlock with Story Musgrave. Uh, They had very, very little preparation for the spacewalk, but luckily everything went very, very smoothly, uh, especially thanks to Story Musgrave, who knew everything there was to know about the spacesuits having helped develop them. Uh, And actually, Don Peterson went way back to the Apollo era and was part of the support for the Apollo 16 way back in April 1972 and had just made the cut as an astronaut at that point.
0: Matthew, another bit of sad news along with Don Peterson is, um, is the great Alan Bean, the fourth man on the moon who has died aged 86 after suddenly falling ill while travelling in Indiana a few weeks ago. So there we go, Lost. we've lost eight of the 12 men who left their boot prints in the lunar dust with only Buzz Aldrin, Dave Scott, Charlie Duke, and Harrison Jack Schmidt remaining. Very sad. Yeah, um, But super let's have sad. a little look at mm. his life. Incredible stuff. First astronaut from his class to draw a command assignment.
1: Yeah, he went on to command America's Skylab mission, which I really want to talk more about. There's quite a few anniversaries of that that have just passed, but yeah, that'd be really cool to talk about soon. He was the reserve for
0: Apollo-Soyuz Test Project, ASTP, um, and the deputy chief of the astronaut office.
1: Yeah, and then he went on to retire and spend the rest of his time painting, and I really love his paintings. Life is a dance, he said.
0: You learn as you go absolutely beautiful rest in peace
1: yes david's going to be talking a little bit about alan bean because he actually knew him it's really great to hear from david about that so some really great news uh nasa's curiosity rover is drilling again so uh jpl uh scientists have managed to and engineers have managed to get it drilling it's it's a lot more like the method that you use at home to put up your pictures it's uh, uh, the curiosity rovers using its arm to push the drill into the martian regolith and rocks Uh, and uh, the project manager steve lee described it like this he said those are two vital inches of innovation from 60 million miles away and we're thrilled that the result was so successful so well done uh, nasa for that that's fantastic news And after China with
0: some amazing news, Matt, um, they've invited other countries in the United Nations to use uh, the Chinese space station, the CSS, uh, which is expected to be up and running by 2022, so not long to go. Xi Shonghuan, I hope I pronounced that right, probably not, uh, China's ambassador to the UN, said the CSS belongs not only to china but also to the world whoa all countries regardless of their size and level of development can participate in the cooperation on an equal footing
1: whoa that really is pretty big news i reckon what do you reckon it really is a
0: a kind of wake-up call to the us and russian dominance in
1: space absolutely amal well Talking of space stations, we have uh, lots happening this week with space station crew. So on June the 3rd, after 168 days on the International Space Station, we're going to have Scott Tingle, your mate, returning to Earth and Anton Skleporov and uh, Noroshi Kanai of the Japanese uh, space agency, JAXA. I love and that. on June the 6th, Expedition 56 astronaut Serena Onan, Chancellor of NASA, cosmonaut Sergei Prokopioff of Roscosmos and the Alexander Guest of the European Space Agency will be launching on MS-09 up to the International Space Station. And actually you might remember back in January the 16th a non-chancellor was the replacement for Jeanette J. Epps who was mysteriously removed from that position. So, still, don't really know what happened there. And talking of Anton Sklapanov and Noroshigi Kanai, uh, Vladimir Putin and Shinzo Abe spoke to them from the Kremlin last Saturday. So that was that was quite cool.
0: I'd like to know what they talked about.
1: Do you know what? So would I. But the YouTube clip that I can find of this uh, particular talk isn't translated, so it's in Russian and Japanese. Very interesting. Another really exciting story is that Virgin Galactic's VSS Unity has conducted the second powered test flight last Tuesday. Uh, So that's another step forward to their goal of uh, having um, commercial space flights. Um, And it's the second after the, the delays from their disastrous test flight that resulted in the loss of the VSS, the original VSS Enterprise in 2014, uh, and this is what uh, Richard Branson said. He said, "It was great to see our beautiful spaceship back in the air, and to share the moment with the talented team who are taking us step by step to space." Seeing Unity roar upwards at supersonic speeds is inspiring and absolutely breathtaking. We are getting ever closer to realising our goals. Congratulations to the whole team. So the rocket motor burned for the planned 31 seconds and propelled Unity to a speed of Mach 1.9 and an altitude of a hundred and fourteen and a half thousand feet. So Unity's unique re-entry feathering system was deployed and it came home for a lovely smooth landing on the runway. That is incredible. And talking of space entrepreneurs that want to do commercial flights into space. Uh, Jeff Bezos has been saving the Expanse. Tell us more, Jamie.
0: So he was talking at a gala dinner last Friday. Big time. And, uh, and he said, I just got word that the Expanse was saved. Woo. So that's good news. Anyone who doesn't know what the Expanse is, uh-huh. let me read you the blurb. Hundreds of years in the future, humans have colonised the solar system. The UN the system controls Earth. Earth,
1: Mars and the belt are now at the brink of war. Do you know what, Jamie? I've been watching The Expanse recently. I've just been trying to catch up. I'm still on the first season. But do you know what? It's actually, it's actually pretty good. I'm sure it's wildly inaccurate. It doesn't seem as though they've got the gravity thing quite right. And I'm sure everyone would be crazy ill if they really did live in the asteroid belt. But hey... Loads of people uh, were really gutted that the it had finished, sci-fi had cancelled it, and Jeff Bezos has swooped in to have it on Amazon. So, good on you, Jeff. Many happy sci-fi fans out there. I've never seen it, but I'd bloody like to now. Anyway, enough of this sci-fi. There's just one UK bit of space news, uh, and that's the Remove Debris um, satellite that was launched on the SpaceX Dragon Uh, last April, as part of CRS-14, is about to be deployed from the International Space Station, uh, from the Kibo module. Uh, And it will be actually the largest satellite that's ever been deployed from the ISS. Uh, So, yeah, remove debris is going to be testing lots and lots of different things. We've talked about it on the show before. Huge news. And one final bit of Indian space news, and that is... Former ISRO chairman A.S. Kiran Kumar has been honoured by the president with a Santokoba award. And so President Ram Kovind decided to break the protocol of attending functions organised by pri- private parties to facilitate good people like the ISRO char- chairman, who then went on to dedicate the award to the whole very, very hardworking team at ISRO. So well done, the Indian Space Agency. Damn. God, I love space. Anyway, Jamie and I are having awful difficulties hearing each other. So we just want to get this podcast out. So here is the brilliant David Baker interview this week. no Here I am again. I'm joined for my monthly chat with David Baker. How are you, David? I'm very well, Matt, and, and I trust you are yourself. I'm enjoying the bright sunshine uh, in, in between the storms. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so before we start, because I, I think we're going to be talking a lot about Mars today. So before right. we start on that, uh, obviously, we've just heard the sad news of Alan Bean passing. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask you if you, if you had met Alan Bean, and uh, if so, how did you find him?
2: Well, I did, and very, very early in my involvement with the Apollo program. Um, and, and right from that position, when he was one of several astronauts who were competing for the high prize of walking on the moon, it was very, very clear that here was a very down-to-earth, simple human, and I mean that in, in, in a very um, credible sense, that he wasn't phased by all of the attention. There was an enormous amount of pressure on these guys, and it didn't take it didn't take a lot of ego. And let's face it, to get to that position, you did need a measurement of, of of ego, but not misplaced ego, because these guys performed and didn't just talk about what they were going to do. So I felt that he was he was an incredibly approachable person and would never limit you. Or you know, when you meet some people and they're in very high positions and. They constantly give you that impression that they 're trying to pull away from you because they 've got something more important in their lives and, <laughs> and yeah. it was we 've all met people like that and and some of the very very famous names in the space program could be very much like that, but Alan Bean was one of those who was who was a true uh, down to earth human being that that you felt a tremendous affection for in a professional and in a human sense, and he was the kind of guy you could just chill out with a beer drinking with. And uh, I, I didn't get, I have to say, to that level of personal association. But I met him quite a lot, and he, he was good for a sounding board regarding the sort of stuff that I was doing with regard to developing the J-series. Missions and looking at mission options, and and being very young at that time, and and really being very in awe of a lot of these people, um, <laughs> I, I I found it quite quite nice and a relief that that I I was given the feeling that I wasn't just getting in the way, and that and that I wasn't just a nuisance. And and that they felt that the more people that were included in their activities, the more the collective advantage would grow, and that was the kind of guy that Alan Bean was.
1: Oh, well, that's really good to really good to hear. He he does come across like that in in the documentaries that you see about uh, Alan Bean. So that's that's really heartwarming. So yeah, greatly missed, I suppose.
2: He had many skills. I mean, and and I think he was very much, although a very very different person to Dave Scott. I I was quite involved with a lot of the activities in the day series missions with Dave Scott's crew. And in a way they were making that transition from being formal professional test pilots across into being what Dave Scott always said. He said, we're not pilots. We're not astronauts. We're explorers. And Dave used to love to keep hitting that home. And I think Alan Bean was of that cultural um, in-between ground between the kind of highly specialized focused, very PR-tuned shuttle guys, the guys in the Apollo program that came in right at the tail end of the Germany program, flight-wise, I mean, not entering the program then, but flight-wise, mm-hmm. there was that realization that, hey, you know, we don't have to excuse our position as pilots in these automated tin cans that many professional pilots who weren't astronomers used to joke with them as being and, and right the way back in the days of the right stuff. And hmm. there's another loss we've had, the author of The Right Stuff, um, yeah, that's right. Who, who died recently. Um, I, I think what you get portrayed there is is the real gung-ho jet jockey test pilot of the Mercury and initial phase of the Germany program. And then during the latter phase of Germany and Apollo, when we were planning really serious, extensive science on the moon, they began to realize that the disrespect <laughs> and this surprises <laughs> a huge number of people, the Mercury astronauts were given absolutely every bit of stick they could by their test pilot compatriots who thought that just consigning yourself to a tin can And being thrown around in an almost uncontrollable way, where you had very little authority over the vehicle itself, was about the worst possible position of betrayal a pilot could ever put himself in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now to the outside outside world, astronauts were, were, were Marvel Comic heroes come to life that you could talk to um but that's not how many of the test pilots of the 1950s and early 60s saw it who were basically on fixed and rotary wing aircraft and we were losing those guys every few weeks there'd be another name that would come up on Mm. on the roster of, of of those who had passed on in in the course of their work and had crashed airplanes and the early astronauts didn't have this they they had that that Particular view that this was opening up a whole new frontier, but 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 the pilots of conventional test pilot status just just disrespected them something chronic, and it was a joke. They emerged from that when they really became uh, focused intently on how they could possibly um define for themselves a whole new role and I think it was expressed marvellously by Dave Scott when he said we we're explorers and Alan Bean was very typical of that group. And really we haven't had astronaut explorers since the Apollo group and that's very sad. And we have got a very different kind of astronaut today, highly professional No less skilled, no less competent, no less capable, but of a very different type of human being recruited into the program. I think we will return to those explorer generations when we begin to set foot on the moon again and go to Mars. And Mars, mm. of course, is very much in our focus.
1: So, uh, yes, yeah, so, so one of the very interesting stories that's, uh, that's cropped up in the last couple of weeks, I think, with Mars is the uh, little helicopter that's going to be on <laughs> the belly of, of the 2020 <laughs> rover. Uh, now, And I know that you know quite a lot about this, so, yes, can you tell well, us a little bit about this <laughs> particular mission?
2: Okay, well, there's somebody that I would like to run a flag up who has been grinding away at this for nearly 10 years. And it's a lady called Mimi Ong. Now, she is Mimi, that's M I capital M again, I, and Ung, A-U-N-G. And, and this lady is is of Asian lineage, but has been at JPL for, for quite a number of years. And she's, she she goes by the grand title of the Autonomous Systems Deputy Division Manager at JPL. Going back, it's 19 years since we started thinking. When I say we, I, I was quite involved in earth and planetary science at that time and, and was quite hooked up to JPL. And there was a huge surge on trying to think about how you could liberate a set of sensors, including high-resolution cameras, from either a lander or a slow-rolling rover. And at that point, I remember one of the big points of discussion was, how the heck do you divide the gap, or, or, or do you bridge the divide, between the kind of resolution you can get from orbit in your images and the kind that you can look out across the surface with on a rover? Hmm. And there's a resolution gap between mapping. So you can only really program an autonomous rover to inch its way forward laboriously very, very slowly. The idea came about Mars has an atmosphere. It's less than 1% as dense as Earth's atmosphere, but it has an atmosphere that can work against things with wings. And whether the big debate was, okay, do we start talking about aeroplanes, as in a fixed-wing aircraft, flying across the surface and then landing and uploading to the rover a full reconnaissance panorama so that it can really get a move on, see the hazards, have those programmed in its computer, and go for tens of meters a day because it has already had pre-mapped the journey that it will take that normally it has to inch its way forward, send it all back to Earth, JPL has to work out the manoeuvres to upload for the commands. These things, these things are not self drive vehicles. They are programmed. They might be called autonomous, but they are pre-programmed. Even the most advanced rover on Mars is pre-programmed to go along a route that is observed mapped into three dimensions and for whom all the control moves are placed in the computer on an upload and off it goes. And they only move a couple of meters at each time. And, and this is, and then this was always known. It was, there's never going to be a gap between hmm. this, because there is an order of magnitude between the resolution of even the highest resolution spy satellite camera level of technology from an orbiter around Mars to what the navigational cameras can see, even on an advanced spacecraft like Curiosity, the big MSL SUV size rover that we've got roving around, or we say roving around, it just inches its way forward, or meters its way forward, very, very very discreetly. And so the big debate back at the end of the turn of the century, and it was 1999 when this work really began um, with a minimal amount of funding at JPL to determine whether it should be a fixed-wing aircraft or a rotary-wing aircraft, to go ahead and to do a full-scale reconnaissance so that you can set in the logic drives of the computer that controls the traction and the direction and the, the angle of steering, etc., on the wheels, you can plan much, much, much for that beyond the visual capability of the rover itself. And this really didn't go very far because the technology of the automated systems meant that it had to be a very significant weight applied. And so round about the time that Matt Gollenbeck was working on the first rover to go down on the surface, he knew that this would be the next big step and that we would would probably continue to evolve rovers bigger and bigger and bigger. But a a campaign group began at JPL that drove people not to become fixated just on rover, rover, rover. Hmm. Rovers are fine, but they don't know where they're going. And that's the problem that we have. So we needed to fill that gap. Now, in 2015, finally, it was recognized with the final development steps in the Mars Science Laboratory and the big Curiosity rover, the type of which is the template for the rover going down in two years' time at Mars 2020. Mm -hmm. Why not put an experiment size helicopter onto the side of Mars 2020 so that it can be deployed to the surface and then do its own thing, never come back to the rover. They simply go on and on and on. It can go up the side of cliff edges. It can go down across the scree deposits and the tailors, which are slumped down. It, It can soar right up hundreds of meters up a sheer cliff face to see what's on the top of it and some of the limitations of the rovers because although you know we're all very good at singing the virtues now wonderful all these vehicles are but in fact they're very very limited opportunity it was not unusual for a hundred souls a hundred Mars days to be spent simply programming to go walkabouts to find the best place to spear in on to do science mm. and At Victoria Crater, listeners may remember, perhaps they don't know, but 340 Mars days were spent wandering around Victoria Crater doing a mapping survey that a helicopter could have done in two days. Mm. You know, we have not yet logged up an amount of traverse across the surface of Mars accumulated from all the rovers we have had moving, which could go from Brighton to London. (laughs) <laughs> they have just been inching and inching and inching. And this has been the problem. And and suddenly it, it the, there was a big burst on this during long before the, the the mid-1990s when individuals began talking about this. They looked back at Apollo and what had happened just by the lunar roving vehicle and by using a television camera that could look far out across the surface. The high-resolution imagery from principally Lunar Orbiter at that time, that gap between what you saw in Lunar Orbiter images and what could be seen in the advanced mapping camera systems from the Apollo service module on those j missions, still didn't provide enough resolution that you could get with the TV cameras in order to be able to help with localized driving between obstacles on the surface so that you can define the difference between a rock which is embedded and is going to become immovable to one which you could kick over with your shoe and that's the difference with regard to the kind of obstacles you need to navigate around so it's been buzzing around oh i guess really 25 years but 19 years in terms of actual papers and studies being done and finally money was given and Mimi ung has been working on this at JPL for the last three years and its application for 2020 the Mars 2020 was was uh, brought together by Matt Golenbeek, um, whose little rover when nobody wanted to carry a rover to the surface of Mars at all and and that first one at the end of the 1990s that little rover which was the size of a microwave oven <laughs> running around on the surface. what are you doing this for? Why we got more important things to do than this little thing running around? It's taking all of all of, of of the development funding and all of the weight away from proper, sensible scientific experiment. And suddenly, when you unleashed the science that that rover autonomously could return to Earth, bingo! Everybody wanted rovers on the surface of Mars. The breakthrough that that brought is as is or the breakthrough that this helicopter will bring is as great as the burst through the opposition that there was to putting expensive rovers down on landers. Because everybody thought, landers, landers, landers. Viking was the template. Why don't we go running around on the surface The reason you want to go running around is that you're migrating across geologic units, and you can therefore do the one thing that from geology to biophysics to paleontology is the one driving, simple word that you must apply all of your research to, and that is context. Into what context are you putting your observations and your findings? So you need to characterize the nature of the geomorphology of the whole site that you're exploring, beyond what you can actually physically reach. You can't do that with a lander because it's... It's immovable, and a rover is so limited because you just cannot set it, wind it up, and set it going. Mm. It has got to have a route which is eloquently mapped. So this is what this helicopter provides, and its technology is
1: stunning. It seemed to be an announcement that came out of nowhere for for me, and obviously I'm sure people in in the in the know knew this was coming. So why did this suddenly become a thing of yes, we, it, this is going to be part of Mars 2020?
2: Three things happened. You needed to demolish the cynics who refused to allow several kilogram of mass to go onto a vehicle where where every half kilogram is fought over like a civil war within the community of the science fraternity that's working on, on the various instruments. You had to demolish that prejudice. You could only demolish that if you showed that you could produce a helicopter that could endure for the life of the rover several years on Mars for less than a kilogram. The entire thing is less than a kilogram. And it uses, it it operates out of a box, which is only 14 centimeters on the square each side. So it's 14 by 14 by 14 centimeters, this box shape. (laughs) Within that weight of 965 grams, it is topped off by a contra-rotating rotor. Now, there are two types of helicopter design. either the conventional rotor at the top on a rotor hub, which is providing lift. And as an anti-torque device, there is the tail rotor operating in the vertical plane. Mm -hmm. Now, the two can operate together to cancel out. You slow the rotor so that it begins, the helicopter begins to turn around its main lift rotor, and then you speed it up to stop it. So your pointing comes from the velocity of the tail rotor Mm. and the pitch and the angle of the wings that are rotating to create the speed of the air. That's how a helicopter works. You you get the speed of a fast-moving airplane while the thing is standing still. Because instead of moving the whole airplane fast to get (laughs) lift over the wing, you just move the rotors fast to get lift on the wing and then you lift it up and off you go. And so the two concepts of the helicopter from about 1999 to, I think it was about probably 2013, 2014. And this battle has been raging long and long and hard with, with little handfuls of people trying to steer it uphill toward senior management to get them to approve it. And as this... As, as, as the first opposition, this, this tendency not to believe in it from those who just wanted to put conventional instruments on, on the conventional rover, you got the weight down to less than a kilogram. And nobody could argue with that. And then you didn't disable the... Or compromise the ability of the rover by by having to increase the technology or the mass that was on the rover to move it around. It all translates that the heavier the rover, the less you can do with it in terms of its mobility through the amount of power that you have produced on board. And of course, this is these large rovers are powered by nuclear Hmm. thermonuclear reactors, RTGs. And so when, when you demolish the naysayers by saying, look, it's one kilo, it's less than one kilogram, and then it's off the vehicle and gone in terms of mass impact. And then they said, well, how about the data streams? No problem. It can simply dump over and can relay during the quiet periods when the science information is not modulated on the carrier wave so that it's basic engineering data that comes strapped to the side lobe of the carrier wave so it's no impact on the telemetry and it was getting better and better and better and looking more and more and more effective. And then the frustration with operating Curiosity on Mars, this stonking great high-performance, it's literally like driving a Rover Evoque up the M6 at five miles an hour mm. and being very, very happy with that and just doing about 50 feet a day. You know, it was that frustration that kept They said, here we've got this stonking technology with this Curiosity rover. We're, we're learning through technical challenges, through poor design on the wheels, or new wheels from ours 2020, because they were wearing out badly on Curiosity. And there were a lot of other learning curves with the drill, and, and there are problems with the drill, and that has yeah. now been solved. But all the while, it seems that here you've got this super technologically advanced landing system entry descent and landing lowering it down on a sky crane and you're just inching around doing less than a baby would call in a day <laughs> and suddenly they realised, okay and it was sold on the basis the third element was you will get much more science you'll spend less time drifting around taking tourist pictures to decide how you'll come back upon that scene and do Serious science. So you can you can actually with this one kilogram helicopter, which will be on the front starboard side of the main box structure. So if you're if you're sitting out in a driving position on the Curiosity rover, which is the same as the one that will be used to send this, it would be essentially on the off, just off the position of the front right wheel. Right. So what will, there'll be a deployment mechanism to put this 14-centimeter square box down on the surface and then the rover will drive away. There will be there is a solar cell power system across the top of the shaft that holds the contra-rotating blades, one plane of blades above another and uh, that will provide uh, approximately two to three minutes flying per day with about 200 watts. From the solar cells. But with that, in the course of moving out across approximately 600 meters a day, you are doing what that rover would do manually in about 25 to 30 sols. So it's a massive game changer. So you can target, you can spend less time driving and more time at the site that you've predetermined from your reconnaissance surveys using high resolution stereo camera systems and and that essentially with with the blind drive 400 meter capability that will give to the rover so it's blind drive is is the expression for essentially okay from A to B is going to be a 400 meter drive just go straight and drive. Mm. You cannot see that with the navigation cameras on the rover, but it's already been pre-mapped as though you've slowly driven all over all over that area. And the helicopter has done that for you. It's come back and landed, or it it may have come back only halfway within communications reach, line of sight of the rover, and then it can go further on. So you're multiplying to be able to go on kilometres beyond where the rover is. So every time you come back, it's got to be within line of sight. But you're, you're moving the rover faster, going from unit to unit. So this is the lunar roving vehicle from the Apollo J-series missions as an integrated fast-tracking exploration set of exploration tools to spend less time wandering about, more time on hard science at the sites you've already predetermined from your reconnaissance. And, and those figures really are stunning that although, well, Spirit had to part because it died a number of years ago, Opportunity is now wandering around. But 340 souls just wandering around the edge of Victoria Crater, finding out which was the best to settle down and do serious science, that that would have been reduced to about 10 souls compared to 340. So this is a game changer and everybody is now switched on massively and it is believed um, but, if this works that the approach in senior management is very much to up this and make it rather than just have a lander put down by the skycrane concept and and by the way, the skycrane concept maxes out at a vehicle about twice the mass of the curiosity road so so you could use the technology that was used for curiosity and that will be used for Mars 2020 to carry keep the size of the rover the same and then exploit the capability of growing the sky crane engineering capability which theoretically technically is capable of doing and put an equal sized helicopter in the package to really go tens of kilometers away doing very very high resolution mapping and and that that really is the secret so so that you've got a new generation that we all thought that the several steps that would go in in the exploration of a planet was was a flyby to get the the spatial awareness what's what what is the is the three-dimensional space of the body like and then to go into orbit to give the temporal changes over time of these features, then to get down on the surface with a lander, to sit there for an amount of time, looking at the environment and the surface, and then to go off on a rover and just thought that was it. And the next step is human footprints. No, the next step is to conduct in this interregnum between the advanced exploration tools we've got now and when we can send humans, which is a considerable way of still unless we devote the kind of resources that are, are phenomenally out of reach in anybody's logical expectation, this is a serious game changer. And not only for Mars, it can be for anybody in the solar system that has an atmosphere.
1: Yeah, that I mean, that's the exciting bit. I mean, for me, uh, I think just on a PR front of uh, point of view you've got this fantastic uh, uh, you know uh, essentially what people mm. consider a drone or whatever uh, flying around yeah. and, and and people will easily be able to understand that concept of the counter-rotating blades because yep. of all those yep. toy helicopters that suddenly proliferated yep. a few years ago that yeah. you know you know yeah, they're yeah, really yeah, stable yeah. so it's going to be yeah. i think it's going to be really fantastic just for yes yeah, space advocacy alone it's going to be it's I, i'm really really looking forward to it now and especially now i've just heard you talking about it I think <laughs> that's that's yeah. really exciting uh, by the way I just looked up Mimi Ong and um yes. I really like the fact that she grew up in Burma with no television and having to pump her water right. from a well I mean yes. how what an extraordinary yes. story that is in itself that's
2: right that's right yes it is that, and she's a great motivational individual both as as a human being and as a woman in this science and and we need so many of both. Um and, and it is it is so extraordinary that, that you find these these are the real heroes of the space programme. You know, we spoke about Alan Bean. Alan would be the first person to say he is shoulder to shoulder and she with him as being true heroes of, of, of the space age. They are enablers. And and this is so so very important. And I think you mentioned the PR side and I think that's very, very important as well because as editor of Spaceflight, I'm very, very aware that you have to, to strike a very fine dividing line between serious observation and analysis without boring the reader. And also to be aware that it is very important to get excited. You can get excited about science. You can, you, you can get emotional about science. It's what it is all about. And, and too many times we, t- we have tended in the past, I think not so much nearly now. But there has been this sense of reserve over almost of, of, of containing it and not letting it out there in, in the big wide world. And the PR effect that will come from the order of magnitude improvement in the resolution you get. Look how people get, get excited over the, the pictures from Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter which, which mm. is, is a stonking quantum leap. Well, you are going to get a whole order of magnitude better. These cameras on this uh, helicopter will produce images three centimeters per pixel.
1: Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs>
2: yeah. I can tell you were impressed. I was when I caught up with the technology on this. I mean I've known about this in, in, in the you know, it's been in the background there murmuring on, and I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's got to happen sooner or later, and it is now fully. Um, and this is tow in the water, and, and ocean liners will come from this because th- this is just a key enabler. And, and really, this advances the opportunity to more sensibly select, not as tourists or colonies or, or whatever, when we send people to Mars, we have got to send scientifically literate survey teams on expeditions to understand this planet, it's going to cost so much, and the resources are going to be so enormous, committed to human Mars exploration, that we have got to provide adequate breadth and depth in all of the reasons why we go. It was said we went to the moon not because of of our political ideological desires for confrontation across the political divide, a race with a political ideology that we were averse to, Um, but we went because of our imagination. Well, that's a nice thing to say, but I think it's actually very true that we need to do that. We need to express our imagination in realistic ways that bring us all together. And you've heard me before banging on about the need for international cooperation, and we need to do all this together. Um, And and I think that we we need to, to... We can't wait to settle our differences on this earth. No. It's not going to happen. We're too tribal. We're far too tribal. And I have a, I have an op-ed piece that I've written for the next issue of Spaceflight, which, which is right on this. Are are we fit to explore the solar system, given what we're doing to each other on the surface of this Earth? Are we fit? Is this right that we should do this? Well, it's a provocative, thrown-out thought, and I want people to gather their thoughts. Write to me in Spaceflight with your thoughts on this, because I want us to be. I don't want this to be a, oh, well, let's not bother them because we'll never stop wars and we'll never stop tribalism and we'll never stop hating each other. But surely we can address these things in parallel rather than waiting to solve all the Earth's problems and then go out there. Maybe this is the way, working on programs like this to the International Space Station, so people who come from all corners of the world, to make things happen. Yeah, and that is is the key enabling factor that will allow us to really mobilise planetary resources to put humans on the surface of the red planet.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, that really reminds me of, and I can't remember the, who were the um, who the boss of NASA was at the time, but he wrote a fantastic letter to a nun, I think it was, who was basically saying, "Why are we spending all this money on going to the moon when there's people starving?" Mm. And he wrote just. Yeah. The the, the the most iron cast case there could ever be it's just like you no, you no mm. longer have to really follow that up with anything else it was it was a fantastic yeah, yeah fantastic piece and and it's really yeah it is really interesting to see even with all the troubles that's going on between Europe and russia and ev- everything else that's mm. that still in, mm. in in space it's you know partnerships are, are still there and we're working very closely with all the people that we're yeah. apparently at odds with in other Walks of mm. life, so that's really encouraging, I think. And mm. I think, I think, I think, mm. really seeing ourselves as stuck on the pale blue dot is a is a fantastically uh, emotive way of, uh, of, mm. of of pushing the human race forward. I think.
2: Indeed, and I think it brings us full circle as well. Considering Alan Bean, and and there are not a few of these astronauts who who have um, who have shown their artistic representation, well, their art. As representing their feelings about space and the and the remarkable drama that as astronauts they they have uh, have experienced. Alan Bean was was one of those who was who was very sympathetic to the emotional and the connected and the artistic reflective side of all of this. And I think it does encapsulate all of the human condition. Um, we carry with us the baggage of of having been such such a new life form on the planet that, that we're getting we're still immersed in our nursery stage where we're throwing toys at our pram all the time. Um, I live in hope that we will mature as a living entity to be able to rise above this and to evolve out of it. But, but we are so new on the planet. We are so, when, when you look at the evolutionary stages that, that other, even other hominids have, have had to go through and primates, um, we, we've hardly begun. And, and yet I do believe in, in the enabling capabilities of these aspirational programs and projects at a very day-to-day scale can help to batter down those differences that we seem all too fond of raising uh, between each other. But there's such good news, isn't there, out there? And when you look back a few decades, and I guess, you know, when I when I came in on this program right in the teeth of the, I mean, the space program, in the teeth of this ideological confrontation, we were all so aligned east and west. And in 1963, when I first went to the United States and and experienced this, it, it was very, very much a post-World War II ideological struggle to prevent another conflict breaking out and to and to to test our differences out there in in the cosmic void. And there's a danger that we simply we simply retain that as we move out of as we've moved out of the Cold War period um, in, into this area of cooperation. We need to begin to heal the differences between us, and and this tit for tat. There's there's just another. If I may, Matt, just just introduce another aspect here, which is the fact that we've got a new leader leader at Roscosmos who has come to it um, as, as really considered by many Russians in the space program to be the most unsuitable head of Roscosmos ever. And this is Rogozin, who was yeah. the deputy prime minister under Putin. And because he was hit so badly with the um, sanctions from Britain and from the United States over Russia's, over the, the the way the West regards Russia's actions in the Eastern Ukraine and the Crimea. Rogozin was, was sanctioned, he lost his political position. And of course, the fact that Rogozin has now become head of Roscosmos, and because he faces such dissident concern among his own fraternity of, Space industry personnel. He is accused by them. It's not my opinion as an outside observer, but they are they they really are coming out and virtually and because of the way they are saying this mindful that it will get to PCTS very, very quickly. They are saying that they're very concerned indeed. But one of the comments was that they're concerned that he could completely unstitch the International Space Station Agreement, right at the time when America itself is in is is in discord over what to do about the ISS and the and, and here it patches in the fact that because we've got the Russians now beginning to get cold feet on getting further involved in another major human spaceflight initiative, which is the, which will be the lunar um, orbital platform Gateway, the LOPG, that, uh, the, the space station around the moon, yeah. um, which, which, which which will be supported by U.S. commercial operations that are now commercially supporting the space station. The Trump administration really is very keen to move as much as possible into commercial activity, and Bridenstine, the new NASA administrator, is very much in seat and in post because he subscribes to that view as well. And so there has been a push since he came on board, Bridenstine, Mm. in the last month to um, put uh, to Congress the fact that they'd like to shut the space station down in 2024 and sell it off. And Congress is really opposing this, they really, really are, and are saying that essentially, and although this has not Come before hearings as a matter of a, of an act of Congress. Um, it is being discussed with regard to policy in the years ahead. That um, that, that, that that approximately one billion a year would be would be saved. Uh, the Trump administration thinks it's three billion because that's the current cost of running the the space station. But the infrastructure cost will be there. To run any sort of human spaceflight program reduces the 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 amount saved to no more. I say no more than one billion, um, which is five percent of the total amount of money that NASA gets each year, and that's not going to pay for anything. Mm. Um, In fact, and and the way it's been expressed, it could lose the nation more than it saves by not continuing, but they're really locked in a problem because NASA cannot afford to run both the space station and the deep space gateway. They just cannot afford to go forward, and already there are problems looming with, with the space launch system. There have been some technical problems in the last couple of months with regard to contractors all the tubing is having all the stainless steel tubing is having to be taken out of the thrust structure section of the core stage of the sls because um it is contaminated Mm -hmm. with a cleaning grease that should have been removed before installation and None of it was. It was found in one pipe, and then every single other pipe that they've looked into has been found. So it all has to be stripped out, replaced, and that could put nine months on the delay of the first flight, which is now not going to happen before 2020, which puts the second flight with a crew three years beyond that. Just just move on a slide rule or a sidebar three years on from the first flight of SLS before humans can fly because of the modifications to the launch pad that are required for the more powerful upper stage. So all of this complexity means that there's more and more money going into developing systems that are not productively returning mission value. We're still sitting around developing these things and it's eating up vast amounts of money. So NASA was really looking at at, at what is largely a flatline budget Um, and and it's still around 0.45 to 0.49% um, one hundredths of the amount of money that na- that the U.S. government spends each year. This is a phenomenally small amount, and that is an in- eternal problem for NASA: the fact that that it just cannot seem to get more money out of Congress. Everybody is oh, doing a wonderful job. Very wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We support it. Bipartisan support. Wonderful. And another um, another aspect which will kick in very much in in toward the end of this year is the fact that we've got the midterm elections, and it is very likely that the House of Representatives will go strongly Democrat. And if that occurs, they are going to hamstring the current Trump administration because they're already drawing up battle plans to challenge Trump's legitimacy as president, which they have been unable to do because of the Republican majority in Congress to date. So there are a lot of things coming up which does not exactly give confidence that it's game over with regard to all the preparatory steps. You've got regarding getting very cool on any future cooperation with the West. You've got possibly the American government having to face a hostile Congress, not only because of political internecine warfare between the two parties, but also because, again, the administration is trying to demand too much of NASA for too little that is being awarded to it. Even though Congress has given NASA more than the Trump administration asked for, this is this is this is bizarre territory, with a big notice called "bizarre" on it, because traditionally congress has been the guardians of fiscal prudence and here they are saying nothing must have more money and and although they're tiny amounts raising it by fractions of a percentage in terms of the total amount as a fraction of the federal budget each year it's a certain credible amount to nasa and we should say while we're talking about this that all of these aspects that trump tried to overthrow to save money out of nasa by getting nasa out of earth resource analysis out of climate change, research, all of that has been put back in by Congress, including as well the budget for education. Education was taken out of that, I think we may have talked about yeah, it yeah. on an earlier podcast. All that's gone, everything has gone back in. So Congress has has provided more money to pay for those things that the Trump administration took out. So it's a long battle, and it certainly is not over yet. But But pulling right back, there are many, many things happening. Uh, over the next two to four years, including all these 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 robotic missions, not least from the James Webb Space oh, Telescope awesome.
1: to Mars. <laughs> that, <laughs> yes. That's the big one. I mean, and surely James it is. James if James Webb Telescope were to fail, presumably that's a just an unbelievably huge blow for NASA.
2: Yes, it would destroy the astrophysics budget, the space science and astrophysics budget. It it would completely decimate it, and I think there would be, because it's already received so much criticism. These big space-based observatories have always received criticism from Earth-based astronomy groups. And when I say groups, I don't mean societies and organizations. I mean the National Academy of Sciences, Mm. the American Astronomical Union, um, and organizations that provide financial recommendations on what money should be spent on what. They've always said, well, for the amount of money that's going on these space-based observatories, we could have a quantum leap in Earth-based astronomical capabilities and that we we really don't need to spend these amounts of money spearing up after finessed areas in astronomical science. So there's this uh, undercurrent always of resentment of that money going on these big, 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 ticket projects and although the original cost of the james Webb space telescope was assessed at just over a billion that was nonsense everybody knew it would be more than that and the first reasonably sensible value that was put on it was between 2 and 2.5 here we are at 8.5 and still rising and that could see it it won't it won't have it won't be such an impact that it will shift the NASA ship, of course, but it's going to dent the hole considerably. And, and I think it's going to move Congress away from being happy with major flagship programs. Anything over a billion or two now has a total program. While well, we're talking in these vast amounts of money. Remember that even a single Olympic Games can cost $10 billion. So a billion-dollar space program, um, and here we have been talking about problems on Earth and why do we spend this. Well, it's a tiny amount in the grand enormity of the great scheme of things. But that's the benchmark park figure at the moment, between $1 and $2 billion for a flagship mission. If you get something like James Webb Telescope failing, it will completely destroy the confidence of those who really matter, and and as scientists, engineers from the past eras of the space program, I think we always had to know that it wasn't as who were going to make things happen. It was it was the, it was the legislators and the bean counters that was going to, that were going to make things happen. And and we can get all excited about all these wonderful possibilities as much as we like, but it it is the approval by the lawmakers. And it is the allocation of funds by the accountants and by the financial overseers that will allow these things to happen. And so confidence in those groups is mighty important,
1: mm. well, very important. Do you, think, uh, do you think the entrance of uh, of this huge commercial space sector nowadays... Is making a difference to that do you think I mean because presumably there will be a a case for commercial entities I mean I've noticed that Jeff Bezos is going to be making some kind of announcement about about the moons shortly so do you think that will make a difference
2: yes I do yeah yeah yes I really really do and I think it, it it is now becoming one of the pit props where inadequacies within NASA are beginning to show flaws and it's beginning to look like a Dutch cheese in certain parts of its structure because um, NASA is, is positioned between Congress and the White House, really. It's a government department run and managed by the government. NASA is is in in under the guidance of the White House, and it, 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 it can only get a funding request going up to Congress if it gets that past the White House each year. So it's really caught between the worst of two worlds, those who are trying to push-push for their own political ideological advantage in the White House and those who are trying to constrain excess spending and find the right balance between all these various expenditures in the American economy. But the commercial sector is able to demonstrate that you can vitalize, and here it's more important in America than in Europe or Japan or in Canada, here in this great capitalist powerhouse that the United States is to demonstrate to Congress that you are producing in all these various states, each of which has two senators and quite a few representatives, that money is going to the private companies and organizations. That's really what Congress likes to hear. And the phrase money ticket is, is very often put down. It was put down on actually against the shuttle, that it just essentially is a jobs program, which, which is a money program essentially to disperse federal funding throughout the whole of the U.S. economy. Now, because of what NASA is doing through the space station, it has provided the, the, the stimulus for the commercial providers to logistically supply the space station and they will be required to logistically supply the deep space programs that nasa and the international space station partners are hoping to put together around the moon but i think it can accelerate beyond that because already you've got stimulation money coming out of nasa for these contenders the three main contenders, to put small instrumented packages, and among the three of them, the smallest instrumented package is 30 kilograms, the best one I think is Mastin, or Mars Express does, uh, Moon Express does up to 100 kilograms, to be able to seed around the moon little isolated research stations to disperse across the whole visible face of the moon eventually with private operators sending back to a common science reporting node information that we're getting on Mars from all of these different lander sites. And this precursor step toward the human uh, occupation of moon bases is going to be so important, because I see the moon very much as I see Mars as an Antarctica-style research station. I personally don't buy into Mars tourism and Mars Colonies will all go and live there and and you know use appropriate sunglasses and get our chairs out. <laughs> I, I really think that the amount that we don 't need that from the commercial sector it 's flappery. it 's not going to happen folks. The real incentive is going to be when when it can be demonstrated that there's a real need to go. And we need to do so much with our robotic instruments, and the moon is going to do that. So I I think stimulated by seed money that NASA and the American government have given to people like SpaceX, and a third to a half of the money developing Falcon 9, Dragon, all has come from the American government. Now they're free-running, profit-earning centers, so they can afford to, to kick into high gear, move to the outer lane, and overtake the dinosaurs. And I freely admit NASA, European Space Agency, Roscosmos, the dinosaurs, because they're run by enormous bureaucratic conglomerates. In the case of ESA, by scores of countries that all have to reach a common agenda and a decision. Whereas these privatized companies, I think, are the seeding capacity for really giving governments to come on. So, in fact, they're going to be the horses pulling the big stagecoach, which are the big bureaucratic organizations, rather than the driving propeller pushing the big space agencies forward i think the space agencies are going to have to respond to the commercial sector and not the other way around and that i think is going to shock a lot of those working in government
1: yeah absolutely Uh, well (laughs) i don't i do you know what i even though i would love to talk about insight i don't i don't think we're going to have time to do it i think if we're going to we're definitely going to stretch this out i I, I, the one thing i did think when you were talking about um about the PR aspect of these Mars missions, is I, I, I think yeah. that I think Insight has failed spectacularly to kind of uh, produce any kind of inspirational PR yeah, yeah. whatsoever. I think. And,
2: and yet, it is a very, very important mission because it's adding breadth and depth. And, and although we've had seismometers on Mars before, um, none have actually been placed right on the surface. Of course, there were seismometers on the two Viking landers. Um, and we got very, very good results through the landing legs um, up into the seismometers on on the main body of the lander. But, of course, InSight is doing that. That's a quantum leap by putting a much more high-resolution seismometer down on the surface and drilling down to get the thermal flow and the flux rate through the mantle into the crust of Mars to be able to see the heat flow rate. And that was one of the big surprises, Of Apollo that the moon was losing twice the amount of heat we thought it was so that feeds into the geochemical as well as the geomorphological understanding of what the moon is just as it did um, at uh, or or, of what Mars is just as it did
1: at the moon. Thank you very much for for joining me again David that's been absolutely fascinating as always and it's as I said earlier on it's a it's a very popular segment of the show now so
2: thank you very much matt i do enjoy uh, speaking with you and and the listeners and keep listening matt you do a fantastic podcast keep doing this
1: thank you very much and yes everyone look out for this month's space flight for those that that for those that can't get it who aren't members of the british interplanetary society you can still order it online and you can find it in uh wh smith's and is there anywhere else that they can find it david <sighs>
2: There are a number of private newsagent outlets, um, but if you can't get it at your local, make sure that the manager of that shop orders it for you because it's readily accessible if it's not immediately on the shelf
1: does that include out in america and canada and etc we
2: are moving out there internationally this is part of a growth program which is underway throughout the whole of this year the new look space right is really going down well and i have to say and i can actually say it because it's officially announced we're growing 30 percent sales per month each month which i think is very good news for all the contributors who worked so hard to put all all their sweat and toil into the production of this magazine. And as editor, I'm eternally grateful to all of them.
1: (laughs) That's a stunning statistic. Uh, Any business with 30% growth month on month <laughs> so yeah so and it is uh, and congratulations david it's it, it is fantastic now it's it's it looks brilliant and the articles are really really interesting and we get we get a little uh we get a little bit of a um heads up on the podcast a week before it comes out so that's fantastic and, and thank you for that matt so that was david baker you have been listening to the interplanetary Podcast. Putting the ace back into space. Uh, Unfortunately, I can't get Jamie back. He's in the middle of the Lake District and I just can't get him. So uh, he'd say bye-bye and I'm going to say bye-bye. One last thing to leave you with and that is to look out for this week's SpaceX launch, a Falcon 9 full thrust. So I'm going to say goodbye. Bye-bye, podcast.